It was a cold February afternoon in Vienna. The choir singer's breath fogged as the strains of a funeral hymn filled the air. A small contingent of the royal family and their advisors watched as a group of soldiers marched slowly past, carrying a coffin. Ahead of the soldiers strode 58-year-old Emperor Franz Josef I, leading the procession into the crypt at Kapuschin, the official resting place for the Habsburg dynasty, his noble lineage. No stranger to tragedy, the monarch now faced his greatest personal trial yet. The body in the coffin belonged to his 30-year-old son, Crown Prince Rudolf, who days earlier had taken his own life at a hunting lodge in the resort village of Meierling. The emperor had overseen the viewing and the procession with his customary dignity. His back was straight. Not a tear fell from his eyes. But now, alone with his family in the crypt, his regal bearing dissolved. He collapsed to his knees and wept over his son's remains, telling his wife he could endure it no longer. He may have been weeping for the future of his empire as well. As the emperor's only son, Crown Prince Rudolf was the heir apparent to the dual monarchy of Austria-Hungary. Rudolf's untimely end was not only a personal tragedy, it heralded the approaching demise of the Habsburg dynasty. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. For the current six episodes, we're exploring the lives of three despot monarchs who ruled in the decades leading up to the First World War. King Leopold II of Belgium, Franz Josef I of Austria-Hungary, and the three Pashas of the Ottoman Empire. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is part two on Austro-Hungarian Emperor Franz Josef I. Last week, we examined his youthful rise to power as he succeeded to the throne of Austria at the age of 18. This week, we'll look at Franz Josef's decades-long reign, which was marred by poor policy decisions and a string of personal tragedies. And we'll see how his decisions as emperor triggered the First World War and heralded the collapse of his family's dynasty. We'll have all that and more coming up. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. 
With more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. After succeeding to the throne in 1848 with the help of his mother, Franz Josef and his advisors quickly vanquished an array of threats to his power. He blocked an attempt by Parliament to introduce a democratic constitution, and the military squashed revolutions in the Austrian territories of northern Italy and Hungary. After those early bloody months in which thousands were killed in battle or executed for sedition, Franz Josef began a series of ambitious initiatives to move the empire forward. His mode of governing came to be known as bureaucratic absolutism. While the ruler had absolute say over all decisions, he installed a massive network of officials to carry out the day-to-day work. In the 1850s, the government employed as many as 50,000 civil servants, many of whom aimed to modernize the empire economically and socially. They hoped to grant additional rights, better living conditions, and greater economic mobility to citizens. But rather than agitating for democratic reforms, they saw the stability of the Habsburg dynasty as the best path to progress. A strong state could provide the material conditions to support individual freedom and fulfillment. So they worked diligently to keep the system running, never questioning the emperor's sovereignty. The early successes of Franz Josef's government were extraordinary. In just a few years, the government built hundreds of miles of new rail and roads. The medieval walls around the capital city were demolished, replaced by Ringstrasse, a stately boulevard that still surrounds the city's inner district today. Fueled by revenue from the growing industrial and financial sectors, Vienna became a modern cosmopolitan city filled with art, theater, and music. And progress was not limited to industry and art. The feudal system was abolished, liberating millions of agricultural workers from serfdom and returning their ancestral lands. Franz Josef's March Constitution declared legal equality and recognition for all ethnicities and nationalities. Every group in the diverse empire was free to cultivate its own language, culture, and national identity. On almost every front, Franz Josef's early reign made good on the tradition of his namesake, the reforming emperor, Josef II. But Franz Josef was not concerned with the freedom and contentment of the people. For him, the reforms were all part of a strategy to win their loyalty, with the end goal of shoring up his own power. Franz Josef had come to the throne amidst massive upheavals and rebellions that threatened to tear the empire apart. His guiding principle was to do everything in his power not to let any threats like that arise again. The assassination attempt by a Hungarian nationalist in February 1853 was a reminder that even with peace restored and the economy booming, not everyone in the empire cared for Franz Josef. He could never let his guard down. But if the emperor was obsessed with the stability and integrity of the state, his ever-enterprising mother, Sophie, was more concerned with their family's legacy. 
Shaken by the attempt on her son's life, Sophie became increasingly eager for him to marry and produce an heir. In June 1853, she sent a letter to her sister, arranging for a meeting between the almost 23-year-old Franz Josef and his 19-year-old cousin, Helena. When the cousins got together for tea that August, Helena found herself tongue-tied, and Franz Josef was unimpressed. His eyes turned instead to Helena's 15-year-old sister, Elizabeth. Oblivious to the emperor's affections, Sissy, as she was known, chatted away but with some embarrassment since she knew her sister was the one who was supposed to become his empress. But Franz Josef was smitten. After the meal ended, he went on and on to his mother about Sissy's beauty. Just a few days later, Franz Josef attended church with Sissy and her family. After the mass, he asked for the priest's blessing, proclaiming that she would be his wife. He didn't bother informing Sissy of their engagement prior to the announcement, but she didn't object and seemed fond of her fiancé, if not as love-struck as he was. However, it was clear from the beginning that things would be somewhat tense between the Archduchess and her daughter-in-law. Sophie, for the most part, accepted the situation, but still found opportunities to criticize his son's new fiancé. During their courtship, she told Franz Josef that his bride would be pretty, if only it weren't for her yellow teeth. With the marriage scheduled for the following spring, Franz Josef returned to governing. And all too soon, a crisis arose that had the potential to undermine the security he had been carefully tending. In the summer of 1853, Russian forces had invaded and occupied an area that was a principality of the Ottoman Empire. That October, the Ottomans declared war on Russia, beginning the Crimean War. Soon, the United Kingdom, France, and Sardinia would join the war, allying themselves with the Ottomans. With territories bordering both the Ottoman Empire and Russia, the Austrian Empire stood in a crucial tactical position. Franz Josef found himself at the center of a tug-of-war between the two sides. The Western Alliance appealed to him to ally with them. But Tsar Nicholas had provided the winning blow for Austria during the Hungarian Revolution only four years earlier. Though some hoped he would come to the aid of the more modern Western states, most observers expected the emperor to show loyalty to his benefactor. But Franz Josef surprised everyone by making the worst decision possible. He initially refused to back Russia, offering to provide access and troops to the Western Alliance. Tsar Nicholas was devastated. He had viewed Franz Josef almost as a son. But when the time came for Franz Josef to make good on his promise to France, Britain, and the Ottomans, he reneged. Instead, he suddenly announced that Austria would remain neutral. The jilted leaders were furious. It was a slight that Napoleon III of France, in particular, would not forget. Had Franz Josef come to Russia's aid, the two countries might have emerged from the conflict as the most formidable military alliance on the continent. Conversely, had he followed through on his support for the opposing side, he would have won friends in the economically advanced countries of Western Europe. Instead, he won nothing. By his act of bad faith and bungled strategy, Franz Josef left Austria without meaningful allies, alone on the world stage. 
But he wasn't so lonely back home in Vienna. Franz Josef married his cousin Sissy on April 24, 1854, a few months after her 16th birthday. Sadly, the new empress found herself immediately troubled by her station. Much of her unhappiness was owed to her new mother-in-law, who hovered over the couple's affairs. For several days after the ceremony, the couple didn't consummate their marriage. Sophie needled her daughter-in-law endlessly about her conduct at court. The Habsburgs were a family that very much stood on ceremony. The uncouth sissy, who hadn't been trained as rigorously on decorum, proved to be an embarrassment. Once, during a state dinner, Sissy thoughtlessly removed her gloves at the table. When an elderly noblewoman pointed out that this was not the custom, Sissy insisted that if the empress does it, then it ought to become the custom. But her mother-in-law's displeasure focused mainly on Sissy's ability to produce an heir. Sophie pestered the teenager about having children, and when they did finally arrive, she didn't think Sissy was capable of raising them properly. When Sissy gave birth to a daughter in 1855, the baby was quickly snatched away by governesses Sophie had chosen. The same thing happened with their second daughter a year later. Sissy begged her husband to intercede on her behalf. Finally, when the elder daughter, named Sophie after her grandmother, was two years old and her sister Gisela was ten months, Sissy managed to pry them from their grandmother's clutches. She and Franz Josef took the girls on her first of many trips to Hungary. But the trip was short-lived. Both of the girls became violently ill, possibly with typhus. The baby Gisela recovered, but little Sophie died in her mother's arms. It was a heartbreaking loss, made worse by Sissy's bitterness towards her mother-in-law for keeping her daughters away from her for so long. Sophie was, of course, moved by the toddler's death, as she, too, had experienced something similar. Nevertheless, she continued to press Sissy for a male heir. The following year, Sophie finally got what she desired. On August 21, 1858, three days after Franz Josef's 28th birthday, Sissy gave birth to a son, the Crown Prince Rudolf. The hopes of the family and the empire were pinned on the new baby. But Franz Josef was far too occupied with affairs of the state to be much of a father. And as the second half of the 19th century proceeded, old dangers reemerged, again threatening the stability of the empire. Coming up, the Austrian Empire suffers more embarrassing loss and transforms into a dual monarchy. Every so often, something so impactful happens, it has the power to capture the attention of a whole country. An event so deadly or dumbfounding, it has no choice but to live on in infamy. Hi, Parcasters, it's Ashley Flowers, and I'm exposing the most sinister cases from the darkest corners of the globe in my new True Crime Limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, come along as I guide you on a wicked world tour. 15 different countries, 15 infamous crimes. Take a trip to Iceland, where six people confessed to a murder that never actually happened. Journey to Mexico, where a Lucha Libre wrestler moonlights as a serial killer and travel to New Zealand where two friends hatch a deadly plan to become famous. 
Each episode of International Infamy explores the twists and turns of a notoriously high-profile case, zeroing in on the cultural details which make the crime unique to its location, and explaining why it couldn't have happened anywhere else. Follow my new Spotify original from ParCast, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers, and catch a new episode every week. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By the late 1850s, as he approached age 30, Franz Josef was married and had sired a son, promising a legacy beyond him. But in spite of economic and social progress, the empire was still dogged by civil unrest. For as long as Franz Josef had been on the throne, the assorted states of Italy had been attempting to unify under a single flag. This set the backdrop for the Second Italian War of Independence, a renewed effort to sever Italian lands from the Austrian Empire. In 1858, Count Cavour, the leader of the Italian state of Piedmont, struck a deal with Napoleon III of France. It was agreed that France would come to Italy's aid if the Austrian Empire attacked Piedmont. Franz Josef could not take this lying down. On April 26, 1859, Austria declared war on Piedmont. In response, following their pact, France declared war on Austria. Attempting to recreate his triumph at Santa Lucia a decade earlier, Franz Josef himself led the charge at the Battle of Solferino that June. But the Austrian troops were outmatched by the combined forces of the French and Sardinians. The Austrian military retreated, licking its wounds. Less than a month later, the war was over. Austria had lost and was forced to give up the territory of Lombardy, followed by other parts of Italy in the coming years when Italy would finally become united. In his first year as emperor, Franz Josef had asserted himself militarily and diplomatically. Now he had made himself seem incompetent in both regards. Adding insult to injury, his failure added to the country's financial troubles, setting the stage for a series of constitutional reforms. For all its early successes, Franz Josef's absolutist government had grown so inefficient that it threatened to collapse the economy. His financial policies created such problems that in 1859, the National Bank stopped accepting Austrian currency. A private banking industry emerged to grease the wheels of commerce. But the heads of the banks were sick of being subjected to the emperor's army of bureaucrats. They demanded a constitution and oversight from a democratically elected parliament, and they'd stop lending money until they got it. To assuage the bankers, Franz Josef reinstated the Reichsrat, an imperial council that eventually turned into a parliament. The authority of the newly revived parliament was confirmed by a new constitution in February of 1861. 
For the first dozen years of his reign, Franz Josef had resisted instituting a constitution. In the end, it was neither chanting protesters nor rifle-wielding revolutionaries that forced him to bend, but a gaggle of disgruntled bankers. But taming the disruptions at home did nothing to calm the empire's foreign enemies. In 1866, Franz Josef found himself at war again, this time on two fronts. The Kingdom of Prussia had been striving for years to unite the 39 sovereign states of Germany under one banner. However, Prussia's central role in the effort put them in conflict with the Austrian Empire. Culturally, the leaders of Austria were deeply linked to its German territories. German was the Habsburg tongue and the language of the state government. If anyone was going to be at the center of a German unification, Franz Josef thought it ought to be himself. But the emperor found himself strategically outmatched by the Prussians, in particular the kingdom's brilliant prime minister, Otto von Bismarck. Years earlier, he had announced that he was seeking any pretext to go to war with Austria, and it was a fight he meant to win. To that end, he contrived an alliance with Italy. If Franz Josef opposed Prussia's activities in Germany, he would find himself simultaneously at war with Italy to the south. It turned out exactly as Bismarck had planned. During the Seven Weeks' War of 1866, Austrian forces won a few encounters on the Italian front, but lost resoundingly to the Prussians. The defeat was humiliating and decisive. Austria's claims in Germany were forfeited, and Franz Josef lost any hope he still harbored of winning the German crown. The writing was on the wall. The Habsburg dynasty was no longer the dominant force it once had been. Now 36 years old, Franz Josef was no longer the young conqueror who had risen to the throne as a teenager. At every step, he failed to live up to his early promise, and there were factions within the empire eager to exploit his weakness. Although Hungary comprised a large portion of the Austrian Empire, geographically and in terms of population, the nation had never fully assimilated. Almost 20 years after the unsuccessful revolution of 1849, many Hungarians still longed for independence. By the mid-1860s, prominent leaders began to renew their calls for a new constitution and an independent Hungarian parliament. Franz Josef had to respond or risk another rebellion. The Austrian military was so depleted after its campaigns in Italy and Germany that the emperor was reluctant to take up another fight. After years of contempt for Hungary, Franz Josef was at last ready to bargain. Diplomatic aid came in an unexpected form, the emperor's wife. During her many trips to Hungary, Empress Sissi had become something of a celebrity, as beloved in the country as most of the Habsburgs were reviled. Sissi had also become acquainted with the nation's power brokers. She set up a series of meetings between her husband and two prominent figures, telling him by letter exactly what he ought to say to them. With her help, they arrived at a deal. On February 8, 1867, the emperor and representatives from Hungary officially adopted the Austro-Hungarian Compromise. 
The compact transformed the Austrian Empire into the Austro-Hungarian Empire, or simply Austria-Hungary. It was now a dual monarchy, with Franz Josef reigning as Emperor of Austria and adopting a new title of King of Hungary. The compromise afforded Hungary an independent parliament and government. Hungary would effectively function as its own state, while keeping a diplomatic union with Austria in foreign affairs. It was a bitter pill for many parties to swallow. Ethnic Hungarians in particular saw the compromise as a betrayal of their efforts for independence. But any concerns Franz Josef had about the deal were soon overshadowed by far bigger problems for his empire. In 1871, the German unification was complete, with Austria left out of the picture. Two years later, Franz Josef joined the League of Three Emperors with Kaiser Wilhelm I of Germany and Tsar Alexander II of Russia. The puppet master of the operation was German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. He arranged the alliance to ensure peace between the empires and to promote his own country's emergence as an international power. Though he didn't yet realize it, Emperor Franz Josef was already a relic of an obsolete era, being used as a tool by savvier leaders. Throughout the 1870s, Franz Josef withdrew more and more into his routines. He rose every morning at four and was at his desk shortly after. Once there, he spent the day perusing documents fueled by coffee and cigarettes. His advisors prepared special doctored versions of the newspapers for the emperor, redacting anything that might upset him. He was constantly surrounded by servants and advisors, but had no real companions. As an anonymous member of his inner circle put it, our emperor has not a single friend. He stands utterly alone. His marriage to Sissy grew increasingly cool as well. Having discharged her duty by giving the emperor a son, she kept her own routine. She dieted and exercised vigorously and took up the habit of chain smoking and writing poems. She also continued her frequent and extravagant vacations to Hungary and the Mediterranean, once even picking up a tattoo. To fill the gap left by his wife, Franz Josef began taking mistresses. Most of these relationships were purely physical, but in 1885, at the age of 55, Franz Josef began seeing an actress named Katerina Schrott. Their fling blossomed into the closest companionship of his adult life. Sissy not only knew about the affair, she encouraged it. Though she never felt any passion for her husband, she remained loyal to him and didn't wish to stand in the way of his happiness. Soon enough, however, fate would destroy the happiness of the whole family. One sensational tragedy would wrap them up in an international scandal. Coming up, Franz Josef suffers one tragedy after another. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. 
Run your way. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Now back to the story. By the late 1880s, Franz Josef I, almost 60 years old, was firmly entrenched in the routines and rituals of running his dual monarchy. While the empire had suffered repeated shocks from within and without, he had managed to hold the state and his family together for almost 40 years. But nothing could prepare him for the tragedy that was about to strike. In January 1889, 30-year-old Crown Prince Rudolf checked into a room at a hunting lodge in the village of Meierling. Days earlier, he had quarreled with his father, Franz Josef. No one apart from the two men knew what was said, but Rudolf emerged from his father's office trembling and on the verge of tears. As Franz Josef's only son and the heir apparent to the throne, all the family's hopes were invested in Rudolf. He was groomed from an early age to lead, just as his father had been. But Franz Josef was far busier and more emotionally distant than his own father. And Sissy, still traumatized by the loss of her eldest child, was not as attentive as Archduchess Sophie had been with Franzi and his brothers. Rudolf's upbringing fell largely to a string of caretakers and tutors, in addition to Archduchess Sophie, who really cared about the boy's upbringing. From an earlier age, the crown prince showed signs of what we would probably diagnose today as anxiety. In his 20s, he was routinely sick and began drinking heavily, often combining the alcohol with morphine. To top everything off, his marriage was not going well, and he often turned to other women to fill his time. Franz Josef was insensitive to his son's difficulties. He expected the young man to buck up and rise to his responsibilities. But Rudolf's demons continued to haunt him. Rudolf became fixated on the idea of forming a suicide pact. He wanted to watch someone die before taking his own life. He suggested the idea to his wife, as well as to his longtime mistress, Mitzi Kaspar. They both turned him down thinking the request was a joke. He finally found a willing prospect in a 17-year-old baroness named Mary Vetsera, with whom he had a month-long tryst beginning in the fall of 1888. On the evening of January 29, 1889, Rudolf and Mary sat together in his room at the hunting lodge. What was said between the two lovers will never be known. But at some point during the early hours of January 30th, Rudolf took a revolver and shot Mary through the left temple while she lay on the bed. Rudolf then sat in a chair and gazed at Mary's body for some hours before raising the revolver to his own head and pulling the trigger. The ensuing days brought a whirlwind of conflicting accounts in the palace and in the press. The royal family's official story was that the crown prince had died of a stroke 
Others said he had died of a heart attack. When the truth about the suicide emerged, the palace doctor had to testify that Rudolf showed signs of having a mental illness for the church to allow a religious funeral. The Meyerling incident, as it came to be known, remained an object of public fascination and conjecture for decades. For the Habsburg dynasty, it presented an immediate problem. Who would replace Crown Prince Rudolf in the line of succession? Following the death of his brother Maximilian in 1867, Franz Josef had two remaining brothers. The youngest, Archduke Ludwig Victor, showed no interest in politics. A lifelong partier with a penchant for cross-dressing, Ludwig Victor had affairs with both men and women and refused to marry. The family would not look to him to carry on their legacy. That left Archduke Karl Ludwig, who was three years younger than Franz Josef. When Karl Ludwig died of typhoid in 1896, the right of succession fell to his oldest son, 32-year-old Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Franz Ferdinand was an oddball within the Habsburg clan. His greatest passion was trophy hunting. According to his records, he shot over 270,000 animals in his lifetime, including flamingos, tigers, elephants, and a platypus. Not one to bow to tradition, Franz Ferdinand married a woman who was not among the reigning families of Europe, meaning their children could never hold royal offices or titles. His political ideas were inconsistent and somewhat inscrutable, but one thing was clear. He had a different vision for Austria-Hungary than the present emperor. Things were going to change when he took the throne. As the 20th century approached and Franz Josef transitioned into his sunset years, the emperor kept up his steadfast routine. But his grip on the state was waning. He grew increasingly attached to fine points of decorum. Once, Franz Josef fell ill with a severe cold. When the palace doctor rushed to attend to him in the middle of the night, the emperor, though he could barely breathe, chastised the man for not wearing the appropriate uniform. Still, Franz Josef was not without his merits as a ruler. By the late 1890s, Austria-Hungary had enjoyed three decades of peace, largely owing to the emperor's efforts. But at the same time, the empire was, in the words of one statesman, just to muddle through. The economy weathered repeated shocks. In spite of the emperor's calls for unity, national divisions snaked through the land, and distrust of the imperial order was rampant. The only thing holding the dynasty together was the threat of what might happen if it disintegrated. If the empire collapsed, it would create a power vacuum at the center of Europe. The newly independent states would then be vulnerable to conquest by surrounding powers, especially Russia. This was something that nobody wanted. However imperfect, the Habsburg dynasty was the glue holding Europe together. But it couldn't hold forever. The emperor was an aging man with failing powers, and his efforts at unity often backfired. As the century came to a close, the old views and customs that he refused to abandon were at odds with modern Europe. At the same time, a new rift was widening at the eastern edge of the empire. 
one that couldn't be resolved by a compromise or the promise of a constitution. In the fall of 1908, Austria-Hungary annexed the provinces of Bosnia and Herzegovina, seizing them from Ottoman control. The move rankled the neighboring Serbia, who saw it as an encroachment into their region and also wanted a piece of the pie. Officials in Serbia were especially concerned about a particular Habsburg, the jet-setting trophy hunter Franz Ferdinand. The Archduke had articulated a plan to divide and conquer the Balkan states, including Serbia, and absorb them into the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And everyone knew it was only a matter of time before Franz Ferdinand would succeed his aging uncle and put his plans into place. In the summer of 1914, 50-year-old Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie visited the Bosnian capital of Sarajevo. Rumors were afloat that an assassination plan might be in the works. Bosnian nationalists were conspiring with Serbian officials against their shared adversary in Austria-Hungary, and in particular, the heir to the throne. But in spite of these threats, the brash Archduke went about his travels undeterred. It was a fatal mistake. On June 28th, a contingent of young Bosnian nationalists ambushed Franz Ferdinand and his wife by throwing a grenade at the couple's car as they drove through the capital. Their car squealed away with the couple unharmed, but their driver soon got lost and led them down a road where one more of the nationalists, 19-year-old Gavrilo Princip, was lying in wait. Princip fired at point-blank range, killing both Franz Ferdinand and his wife. Franz Josef had been looking for a pretext to go to war with Serbia, eager to eradicate their destabilizing presence from the region. Now he had one. He sent an ultimatum with demands he knew the government of Serbia would never accept. When the Serbs rejected the ultimatum, as Franz Josef knew they would, Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. Russia, as promised, came to Serbia's defense and declared war on Austria-Hungary. Germany entered the fray on Franz Josef's side. France and Britain joined with Russia and Serbia shortly thereafter. Within weeks, all of Europe was involved and the First World War had begun. During the war effort, the Austro-Hungarian government instituted martial law, and the constitutional gains of the last several decades went out the window. Habsburg officers rallied for imperial patriotism, but rank-and-file soldiers were animated by the kind of nationalism their monarch had always deplored. The spirit of unity that Franz Josef had fought for was breaking down, even as the war decimated his empire. Around 1.2 million Austro-Hungarian citizens were slain by the end of the war in 1918, and another 4.2 million were wounded. But Franz Josef wouldn't witness the end of the conflict he had triggered. On November 21, 1916, at the age of 86, he died of pneumonia at Schoenbrunn Palace, the same place where he had been born. After setting off the bloodiest war the world had ever seen and sending his own men to the slaughter, his last words were a pathetic, self-pitying question, why does it have to be now? 
Franz Josef was succeeded by Karl I, the nephew of Franz Ferdinand, but there was hardly an empire left for the new ruler to inherit. He held the throne for just over two years before the empire disintegrated. In the end, the dynasty of Franz Josef I, the self-described last monarch of the old school, was overwhelmed by the rising tide of the modern world and modern warfare. Tanks replaced cavalry and machine guns replaced rifles, while presidents, premiers, and führers ruled in place of emperors, kaisers, and kings. The old empires were dying as fierce nationalism came to define the great conflicts of the new century. Emperor Franz Josef might have been glad that he wasn't forced to witness more of it. Thanks for listening to Dictators. This was part two of our program on Emperor Franz Josef I. Next week, we'll hear about the three Pashas of the Ottoman Empire who also ruled prior to the First World War. For more information on Emperor Franz Josef I, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Habsburgs to Rule the World by Martin C. Rady, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Dictators was written by Greg Beam, with writing assistance by Tony Goodman and Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi, listeners. It's Ashley Flowers, and here's a quick reminder to check out my new true crime limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, I'm taking you across the globe to look at 15 of the most notorious crimes from 15 different countries. Some stories are sure to shock, some may leave you stumped, but all are quite the trip. Follow my new series, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.